attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Hey, it's Jeff here. What you're about to hear is the recording from our weekly Context and Clarity live show that I co-host with Catherine McPhail. Every week, we bring in a special guest that will help us dig even deeper and find even more clarity around the most popular context and clarity topics. This version of context and clarity is simulcast to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch. Oh, and did I mention that they're live? We're operating without a net, so we may hit a few rough patches and stumble every once in a while. But I think these guests and these conversations are important enough that we really shouldn't keep them to ourselves. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, Entree Architect community, it is 4 p.m. Eastern, which means it's time for the Entree Architect Context and Clarity Live conversation for Thursday. April 8th. This is our live and simulcast version. We're also recording this for all of our podcast listeners out there. So hello to you all as you come in from wherever you are. What does simulcast mean, Catherine? Uh, I think that means cast simultaneously. Can you hear me? I can. I oh, can. Okay, are- I'm sure I had was muted there, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that's what it means. Yeah, we are cast simultaneously uh, to the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, to LinkedIn, to uh, YouTube, and to Twitch. So to all of our thousands and thousands of friends out there on Twitch, uh, hello. Thanks for joining us today. There he is, Kurt from Flint, Michigan, joining us via Twitch, uh, our number one fan on Twitch. Thank you for joining us. Say hello when you get here. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. Uh, Catherine has posted a little link down in the bottom left of your screen right now. If you are on Facebook, because of Facebook rules, we cannot see your name. We don't know who you are. You're simply Facebook user to us uh, because you're in a... uh, private Facebook group right now. However, if you give permission by going to chat.restream.io slash FB, you can connect your Facebook to Restream and we will see your name. Um, Big Brother will be watching you and will know who you are in this conversation today. So say hi as you get here. Let us know that you're here. Even if you're just planning to listen in, even if you're multitasking right now, uh, I think we're going to change that. I think we're going to draw you into this conversation today because it's going to be a good one. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm really looking forward to the uh, guests that we have uh, in the green room right now. Uh, Her requests were not that crazy. We didn't get the, hey, I just want red (laughs) peanut M&Ms in the green room. So we're in good shape right now. Um, And we will introduce 
her in just a minute here. So uh, thank you for joining us. Again, say hi. Let us know that you're here and um, let Catherine know. Say hi, Catherine. Say hi, Catherine. Me saying hi. Oh, oh yeah. they're saying hi to me. Sounds yeah, like they're, that they're saying hi to you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I got it now. No, we're we're good. We got Scott out there in Portland. We got Mark in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Greetings mm. from Richmond, Virginia. Um, that could, we have several friends in Richmond, Virginia, don't we? Um, Jody, Louie, both. They're both in Richmond. I'm not sure which that is. Rod, welcome back from his historic front porch. Tim from Stockton, California. Glad all of you are joining us. <laughs> there you go. See, there's there are your fans calling you oh, out. Oh, that's there, nice. Catherine. Well, you told them too, but. <laughs> Well, they're, they're listening. That's okay. So, it still counts. So now we know. Now we know. All right. I know that we've got an important conversation to have here. And you're, you've are you all been waiting for this all week because we've been prepping you for this. We've been having conversations all week about connectedness. On Monday, we started out by asking a question, what's bigger than our work? Um, how are we connected as a community? If you think about a community of small firm and solo architects, how are you commu- How are you connected? How can you support each other? On Tuesday, we asked, what's bigger than architecture? Um, thinking about your work, thinking about the impact of your work, um, what, what's bigger than what you do? What's your responsibility, maybe beyond your client, beyond the end user, maybe to everyone that encounters your work? And then yesterday, we talked about silos, we talked about bubbles, we talked about what's bigger than ourselves. Uh, how do we find other people's perspective? So we've been prepping all week for this conversation today. So with that, let me introduce you to someone that's in the green room right now. Our guest today is a connector of people, ideas, places, and times. She's a black woman, an architect, a podcaster, a preservation professional, and a sustainability advocate. Like many of you, she works in the tension between requirements and reality, between history and had to, uh, and she's facilitating freedom by opening up critical conversations about the connectedness that both holds us together and sometimes keeps us apart. Nikita Reed, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you for joining us today. Wow, thank you for having me. What an intro, man. Been working all week on that. <laughs> well done. Well, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, one thing that I didn't mention, Nikita is a podcaster. I mentioned that in the intro, but her the name of her podcast is uh, Tangible Rem- Remnants. So uh, I encourage everybody to go find Tangible Remnants wherever you um, consume podcasts and give that a listen. And one of the things that Nikita talks about probably in episode one, uh, would be my guess, uh, not remembering exactly where it was, but she talks about her backstory some. So Nikita, for those of you that are not familiar with that backstory, I, the first question uh, that I want to start with is why historic preservation? Well, um, mainly because uh, when I was younger, I was always fascinated with dilapidated buildings and I didn't have the language for it. I didn't know that those were typically historic buildings. So I went to architecture school because I was thinking architecture school is going to teach me all about existing buildings. It did not. Um, and (laughs) And so I realized that I needed to learn more about the existing buildings that were already here. And I realized that there's a whole field dedicated to that and it's historic preservation. And so architecture has always been entwined uh, with preservation for me. So it's, that's why. I, I love that. And it's so I did an, a podcast interview for someone else today. They asked me about uh, about my backstory and, and part of my growing up. Um, I'm originally from Atlanta, originally from Georgia, and uh, my parents grew up on farms. And so uh, a lot of my early days visiting grandparents, the barns and these other agrarian, uh, other agrarian architecture and, and sometimes county seats and things like that. And that was beautiful. My dad was transferred to Chicago when I was a kid and um, mom is a lifelong learner and explorer. And so I've been to every Frank Lloyd Wright um, house or, you know, Unity Temple. I used to walk past Unity Temple twice a day when I lived up there. Um, and so that was one of the things that fascinated me 
um, and, and probably, you know, similar to you led me to this field. Um, I find it interesting, you know, the, the tagline, I suppose, for mm-hmm. your podcast is the uh, exploration of the interconnectedness of architecture, historic preservation, sustainability, um, race, and gender. And so we can mm-hmm. we can touch on all of those things today. I know as we've been gathering questions um, throughout the week that one of the questions is about you know that that link between um, preservation and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's of course you know this idea that the most uh, the greenest building or most sustainable building is one that's already here. Um, but there there's I think with with everything that we'll talk about, there's a lot of different facets, right, of, yes. of all of this. So what fascinates you the most about that intersection or that connectedness between preservation and sustainability? Yeah. So I, partly it's the fact that sustainability, expanding the definition of sustainability, so we're not just talking about green communities or green technology, rather, and we're actually talking about really the triple bottom line of sustainability which is the environment, the economics, and the equity piece of it. Um, oftentimes, equity gets left out of sustainability. Um, and so there is a couple different pieces of this. So one, there is um, the NAACP has a group called Centering Equity in the Built Environment. And their tagline is uh, sustainability without equity is sustaining inequity. And so it's really pushing that together to make the case that we need to make sure we're bringing everybody along. And then from a preservation side, we recognize that we're not going to build our way to carbon neutral. We're not going to build our way out of the climate crisis that we're in. Uh, And so one of the other groups that I'm in is the Zero Net Carbon Collaboration. And that is basically a bunch of groups that are a bunch of organizations that are together to really get existing and historic buildings into the climate action conversation. So it's members from Architecture 2030, AIA, US ICOMOS, APT, uh, RAIC in Canada. We have some members that are in Ireland. So it's very much a way to make sure we're getting um, existing and historic buildings into that conversation. And the Climate Heritage Network is also doing some really great work around uh, what's going to be happening uh, at COP26 later this year. Because, uh, you know, as Bill McDonough said, we don't just need to do less bad, we actually need to do good. <laughs> and part of that is really recognizing the fact that we need to work with the buildings that are already here and make those more sustainable and green retrofits, but how do we do it in a way that's not going to destroy the historic fabric and it's also not gonna impede on future generations from meeting their needs. I heard you talking about this in an interview and I forget which one, but in a video interview, I think it might've been around um, your receiving the Emerging Professionals Award from AIDC. Um, But the, the woman that was interviewing you asked about all the all the letters after your name right and and so you went through um obviously right. architect and you know aia was there noma was there and lead was there you know all, all the different acronyms mm-hmm. and so obviously you're involved in a lot of different spaces and you have this uh, this pursuit of finding this interconnectedness of of i, I think most of us look at it and go okay well at least some of those things is really easy to understand how they're connected. Maybe there's a disconnect for some of us in some of those aspects. But how did you get interested in this idea of the interconnectedness, or, or when did you come to the realization that hey, wait a minute, you know, there's there's something to this? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and uh, it's almost I think since I knew I wanted to go into architecture, but only because my world has always been both and. Like for instance. I can't, dis- I'm not more black or more woman. It's both and, you know what I mean? So it just depends on what people see first. Um, and so it's one of those things where I've always kind of had a vision of multiple things are more connected than separate. And so I just kind of always like to connect things. So it's, um, I'm not quite sure if I can pinpoint an exact time. Sure. Uh, but I think once I realized that architecture for me was always about existing buildings and I've then once I started learning more and realizing that that's not the way it is for everyone, I was surprised to find that. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> you only want to do new construction, but why? <laughs> so it's, it's always uh, just kind of been there. That makes sense. I, I remember the story that you told about 
and, and I forget who you were with your parents or your grandparents or something from mm-hmm. the story. And you saw an abandoned building, a dilapidated building, and you right. saw homeless people. Yeah. Like right outside. And, it makes yeah. no sense to me because buildings need people and people need buildings. So I, even from a very young age, I didn't understand. And this was actually uh, DC at the time. So DC late nineties, very different place than DC today. Uh, but there were a lot of homeless people on the street and a lot of vacant buildings behind them. And I, just didn't understand why. I was like, there seems to be a fit there. So that's something that I've also been interested in. Yeah, that, that seems seems to be a fit there. That, that's kind of a little bit of an understatement. That is, uh, um, it's a great observation, though. It, it really is. You know, hey, we've, what, how can this possibly be with this separation? Obviously, you know, it requires it, whatever it is, it requires some conversations and maybe some uncomfortable conversations mm-hmm. and, and even looking at all the letters after your name, right. And some, well, you know, how, how does this fit with that? You know, so on and so right. forth. So how, how have you learned to navigate these conversations or start or facilitate or, or, or all of the above, I guess. Yeah. So I typically, uh, I'm very curious about how things connect together. Uh, so whenever I'm talking to an architect who doesn't know what APT is, and that's Association for Preservation Technology, it's like the AIA, but for preservationists. Um, so I'll, you know, talk to them about, okay, well, this is why that exists, and here's what preservation is, and all that. And then I'll meet a preservationist who's like, oh, but we, we're focusing on mortar or the technology side of it. We're not really concerned about preservation. That's not really a or we're not concerned about sustainability. That's not a preservation thing. So then it's like, well, let's talk about that. Let's explore that a little bit more. Um, and then same way when I meet someone who's more so a sustainability uh, professionist, building science person, who's like, well, preservation, that's not built. Like, so wait a minute. Like it's just helping people recognize that there are more connections between the different fields. Um, it's something that I've been excited to do. And then um, layering in 2020 and the cluster that that was and just kind of realizing the vantage point that I had um, I realized I could talk more about these things a little bit more publicly Uh, and then also doing more reading and just learning more Um, and so I started reading The Color of Law last year as well because as I got more into architecture and realizing that architects actually don't have the economic power that I kind of thought we would have when we were younger. Um, So the people outside of vacant buildings isn't necessarily just an architecture issue. It's more of an economics and development and city planning and policy issue. Uh, So learning more about all of the things that got us to where we are now has been um, frustrating and eye-opening and getting into more of those uh, frustrating and uncomfortable conversations that have to be had. Um, and speaking of conversations and to everybody out there, um, in, in our, uh, our studio audience, you know, wherever your studio is, um, remember we want your questions and your comments for Nikita, uh, here in just a second, Catherine will start, um, grabbing some questions and putting them up on the screen to help guide our conversation here. And that's, that's what this is about is about having a conversation with Nikita Reed about all of these, um, all of these things, um, you know, I, I feel that, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's a weight, uh, I, but I, I feel the idea, right. Of facilitating conversations because that, I mean, that's, I mean, if we're honest about it, that's what, that's why we're here, right. That's why context and clarity is a thing is to facilitate conversations. And, um, some of those are uncomfortable, conversations and, and, uh, touching conversations and every, you know, everything like that. So, um, let me, let me ask this. Um, I was having this conversation earlier today because, um, maybe I'm the elephant in the room, right? I'm a middle-aged white guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, the uncomfortableness for some people, of course, Hey, I'm a middle-aged white guy. We're going to talk about race today. I'm going to talk with a black woman uh, about race, or I'm going to talk with two women about gender issues. Um, how do we, how do we get past that? How do we start that conversation? Or, or sh- should I, you know, from from my point of view, should I start that conversation? Um, or you know, I, I feel like the most important thing for me to do is to sit back and listen. But um, 
how do I encourage others to have these conversations? Yeah. Um, so that is a great question. And so one of the things, um, so I work at Quinn Evans. And so um, after um, George Floyd was murdered, our, our CEO and our company decided to start a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion committee called Jedi for that very reason. Because it's, for whatever reason, um, the George Floyd killing uh, opened a wormhole, if you will. More people, particularly in the design profession, started noticing and speaking out more about police brutality, social justice, and really acknowledging design's role in all of this. Um, and it was one of those things where it was an interesting moment for me because while on one hand, I was like, well, welcome to the conversation. On the other hand, I was like, why is this different? Because that, you know, this isn't new. This has been happening for decades. Um, but one of the things that we did at Quinn Evans is we, so the first thing that we did as a company was everyone had to read White Fragility because we needed to set a baseline to be able to have the conversations and even just make the space to have the conversations, recognizing that it is uncomfortable. It is, everyone's approaching it from different perspectives, different vantage points. And so being able to leave, even just make the space to have the conversation is important. And acknowledging that something is happening is step one. So the fact that you even asked that question, Jeff, is great because it's a, uh, there's something happening here. Let's talk about it. And I don't know the answers and we're going to figure it out together. But being able to start the conversation has been huge. Um, and there are a number of resources. I know uh, people like Brian Lee and... Um, also Michael Ford from Hip Hop Architecture. There's a number of also black architects who are in this space and working with Noma to be able to have these conversations and help other designers have the conversations. Um, but one of the things that I encourage my white colleagues to um, not shy away from is the fact that you are affected by race as well. I just feel like a lot of my white friends and colleagues are taught not to talk about race because it's impolite because you know, they want to say, oh, I don't see color or I'm colorblind. And that's not the goal. Like seeing color is not the problem. The problem is treating people differently because of that color or thinking that there's less than. So it's um, having the conversation and even just making space for that conversation is really important. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's uncomfortable and maybe even intimidating, I guess, in a way, um, you know, assuming, assuming. <laughs> Yeah, what are you worried about? What's or what's the what's the intimidation or what's the feeling? Well, I think I think part of the, so part of that it starts with the assumption that I care, right? right. Um, but <laughs> the <laughs> well, that is it. Well, okay, so let's answer that question first. <laughs> I assume you do. I guess I just assume you do. So again, I'm, I'm right off of a conversation about this about an hour ago, and it was a great conversation because we we really got to the point of talking about the fact that first we we have to acknowledge each other's human beings, right? Precisely. And personally, I don't think everybody's doing that at this point. Um, so there's that, but I think the the intimidation part is if I do, okay. I care what Nikita thinks. I care how Nikita feels. I don't want to offend Nikita mm -hmm. or, you know, whoever, whoever is involved in that conversation. So wanting to be supportive, wanting to find a way. And, and that's really my ex exploration here is how can, um, how can we encourage, and I think I said this a couple of minutes ago, but how can we encourage other middle-aged white guys Right. right to get into this conversation. Part of the frustration is that we can we host a lot of these context and clarity conversations. They're not all about race or gender, or, of course, but um, many times when we have these conversations, the people that I judgmentally think should be here are not here. Right? They they don't show up. But we still need to have these these conversations. We, we you've, they, they have to be, they have to be here. And in my mind, our role is to facilitate them. Right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where making the space for the conversations and recognizing the fact that people will come when they're ready. Um, but it's, you know, we just have to keep having the conversations. So it's, 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 uh, what's the word? It's exhausting. And, and it, but also like to some extent exhilarating, like the fact that I get to talk about white, white supremacy at a predominantly white architecture firm. And I mean, it's, it's amazing and petrifying and thrilling and um, all of the, all of those things. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love on your website. Um, if you go, for those of you that are out there, go to NikitaReed.com. So you can see her name up on the screen there. Uh, Nikita with an A and a, a read with two E's. We actually had this conversation the other day. How many ways can you spell read? Well, there's a lot of ways. <laughs> So, so if you go to NikitaReed.com and go to uh, her the About tab, one of the things that you say is, I'm the black friend my white friends feel comfortable talking with about race. And yes, I, I think that's got to be the starting point, no matter which side of that coin you're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's recognizing that it's not my job to teach anyone about race because we all have the Google, we all can read books. So it's not doing the, uh, it's not doing that emotional labor, but it's more of asking perspectives. Um, and I grew up in a very diverse, uh, I went to a very diverse high school in Northern Virginia and I didn't actually realize, um, this is how diverse it was. I didn't realize that black people were still treated differently until I went to UVA in Charlottesville in early 2002. And I was like, Oh, this is still a thing. Oh, okay. So it was just that kind of culture shock because in my high school, there were like 50 different cultures. I had friends from different parts of the world, spoke different languages. So it was when I got to UVA, it was almost like I was uh, too white for the uh, black folks and too black for the white folks. It was very interesting or too, you know, it was, it was interesting, but I was like, I'm just going to be me. Um, so, Cause it was, I was never, um, I've always rather I've always been more comfortable in very mixed settings as opposed to all one or the other. So it just that just I guess more of the connection piece of it. Yeah, more of the, more of the connection and the the different. It's, it's not even different perspectives. It's it's sort of it's varying perspectives. Right. right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got a question. I have. It's it's kind of a. Um, for those people asking the questions, we're limited to 120 characters on the screen. So it was a very long question in Facebook. So I'm going to try to summarize it because it's more than this, just this question. So what Erica was basically saying is that she was wondering if um, having these at the National Register of Historic Places creates a restrictive um, environment that is uh, expensive to maintain. And is that then, in, in that way, is it upholding the traditions of exclusion? Gotcha. So yeah, so the National Register of Historic Places, um, that is pretty much the national repository of historic places. The um, Interestingly, um, so if a building is listed on the National Register, it can still be torn down. But if it's listed on a local historic register, it typically can't just because local registers typically have stronger enforcement and all that kind of thing. The caveat, though, when a building is listed on the National Register, then it is eligible for historic tax credits. So there is funding associated with that. Uh, The National Register is um, only about 2% of the register. It focuses on uh, places that aren't focused around uh, straight white males and white white gays, basically. That is something that many preservationists are thinking about. And one of the issues that often comes up when trying to get something listed on the National Register is this idea of architectural integrity. And the problem with that is that we know because of urban renewal, because of various policies, a number of areas in cities that were predominantly black or um, other had other um, people of color in it were heavily disinvested. So if we're trying to say that the only way that we can get something listed on the National Register is if it still has architectural integrity, but it's in an area that has been disinvested in for the past 30 to 40 years, then that becomes problematic because then we're keeping a whole slew of buildings out of the register that are actually sites of historic importance and cultural significance. But we're if we're only saying, oh, it doesn't have architectural integrity, that becomes an issue. And so there have been a lot of conversations about how do we use the National Register nomination process to make sure that we're not still excluding uh, sites and starting, start, starting to try and address some of the systemic issues that exist within policy that we know exist in policy that are just now starting to be more evaluated. And thinking of and continuing that thread on policy, I remember uh, reading The Color of Law and the part of the book that blew my mind the most was the discussion of Levittown. Mm. Mainly because we learn about Levittown so much in architecture school, you know, it's this post-war mass production, suburbia, you know, it's, it's, it was the model. 
the thing that I didn't learn in architecture school was that the only way the FHA would actually finance it was if the developer did not sell to any Negroes and that had to be codified. So the mm. fact that there were all of these thousands of houses that were, you know, FHA loan approved and all that, but could not be sold to any African-Americans like, wow, that's problematic. And that, you know, chain reaction and learning in more about the FHA and policy and all of those things. Um, so anyway, so yes, preservation can uphold, um, can uphold traditions of exclusion if there aren't preservationists who are paying attention to these things and having these kind of conversations. Let me flip that one around a little bit too, because uh, Erica was actually, uh, she actually brought this up this morning in our uh, conversation on Clubhouse as well. Mm -hmm. So those of you that are out there that aren't aware of this, Context and Clarity, of course, is this live stream, but we also uh, have a podcast that comes out every morning. Um, and then on Clubhouse, we have our coffee talk every morning where we sort of preview the topic of the day. And so Erica brought this up this morning as well. Also from the point of view of, you know, what happens when you have communities, actually like the, the neighborhood that I live in here in Indianapolis, um, that the entire neighborhood or, or here's a piece of the neighborhood, but the, the neighborhood is, mm-hmm. um, is listed, um, which of course has requirements, local in- requirements and enforcement that may intentionally or not mm-hmm. keep, uh, I mean, it may drive gentrification, right? Because if you can't buy, maybe you can buy this property, but you can't keep this property up with the tile roof, the whatever, the whatever that's, you know, no, you can't replace that with asphalt shingles. No, it does cost more uh, to, to keep this up and meet the standards and so on and so forth. So in that, is there, is there a way that preservation enforcement, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but is there a way that that upholds or promotes even, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to be nice and say, unintentionally um, promotes exclusion, but is, is that a reality? Is that happening? Yeah, it is. And it's one of those things where there have been some really great studies done by um, Place Economics. So Donovan Ripkema and his team, they've been looking at the impacts of uh, preservation on gentrification and what it does to the existing community and what that looks like. Um, so I don't have any good examples offhand, but I would definitely recommend or encourage everyone to check out Place Economics But in terms of local preservation commissions, that's also something where um, volunteering, getting involved, and being involved in those committees makes a difference. Um, There have been a number of preservation commissions that I've gone to where I've had to actually argue preservation law with the preservation commission, who's like just some rando who likes preservation and likes old buildings and is trying to tell me that I'm like, listen, I have master's degrees in this, and this is what I'm telling you. Your feelings about this don't matter because this is what the standards say. But it's kind of like recognizing that the politics of who actually gets on those committees matters, Um, how they're appointed, who they are. Sometimes it's just local real estate agents, people who knew the mayor, knew the whatever. So it's um, making sure that there are people in places that have um, some knowledge of what actually needs to happen also helps. But it's all politics, networking, who you know, unfortunately. Mm. (laughs) Right. That's true. So as a, as a follow-up, and I don't know whether you just addressed this really or not, uh, Jeff, in your question. So she follows up with, is it possible that in some applications, preservation is doing more harm than good? So the answer is yes, but that also could be true for architecture. There are some places where architecture development, basically anything, depending upon the application, could be That's doing true. more harm than good. So um, I, you know, it's cautious to not what's the saying? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but it's also making sure that uh, we're just being more intentional and uh, taking a wider lens to make sure we're telling a fuller story. Um, what I'm One of the projects that I'm working on now is about women's suffrage and the 19th Amendment. And I'm, we're trying to be very intentional about the language because we keep talking about the fact that, oh, well, the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. Yeah, And that's kind of what we're talking about in school and all that sort of thing. But it's like, but mm, Actually, the 19th Amendment gave white women the right to vote, not yeah. all. So and you know it's what's like, cra- crazy is that I just learned that this year. I just learned so many things in 2020 right. that yeah. 
I had no idea. Even though I consider right. myself to be pretty well educated, I had no idea. Right. And so okay. it's all about kind of the way that we're telling the story. And yeah. so it's really trying to expand the narrative. So we're including more people in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think that language is really problematic, actually, saying women got the right to vote because we not that's not no. true. Just white right. women got the right to vote. Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, okay. So did we finish that question? Should I move on to another question? Yeah. yeah. While, while, yeah while you're looking for that, one of the things that I have appreciated from your your podcast is um, because storytelling is a big part of what I, I do and what I'm passionate about. And I found it really interesting to hear you talk in the different episodes of your podcast about the way that the story is told, just like you just did right there with the, the 19th Amendment. Um, what, story, what story are we telling? What are we leaving out? What are we, um, what are we putting in? Um, I, I, think, I think we really, really need to be paying attention to um, be intentional be really right. intentional about it. And I'm not discounting the fact that stories have been told in a very intentional way for, for other reasons, you know, for, for nefarious reasons or not so good reasons. But, uh, um, I really appreciate that perspective that you had in, um, or you have in your uh, podcast as well. well okay. Yeah. Well, we have varied questions here, but I thought this was kind of interesting. You know, I, um, listening to the podcast when you were speaking to the woman who had traveled around the world and had um, that experience in Africa where she was considered to be, oh, yeah. or, you know, so that was kind of interesting. Anyway, so that reminded me of this question. Uh, what can we actually has nothing to do with this question, but somehow reminded me of that um, what can we learn from how other countries and cultures approach historic preservation? Yeah. Um, so that is also, these are great questions, man. I'm loving it. Um, so one of the things that got me thinking a little bit differently about preservation was that there are some countries and particularly some um, different native cultures where their idea of preservation is letting an artifact return to the earth. Like they don't want something to go to the museum. So if it's something that's made out of wood, stone, anything like that, it's their culturally, uh, their way to culturally preserve it is to let it return to the earth. And so that was kind of a, that turned the idea of preservation for me on its head, because at least in this country, we practice it more so as in, we either need to preserve it as it is, because typically some, some dead old white guy was there, or we need to like re adaptively reuse it <laughs> and then turn it into something else. Um, and so I've always been fascinated with how do we, um, how do we reuse our buildings here? And I did a study abroad um, in England, actually in Plymouth. Uh, and little sidebar, I didn't make the connection until we were there that the Plymouth that we were studying in was actually the Plymouth that like the pilgrims left from. And I was like, oh, oh okay, all right. Um, oh, got it. Um, so anyway, so talking to um, a conservationist there, because uh, on that side of the pond, they call it conservation. Um, they were like, you guys in America treat your buildings too precious. We have castles older than your country the building designer was like, that is some perspective. You are correct. <laughs> you do have some buildings older than our country. Uh, and so really just thinking about the different ways that we can um, not have to try and make things a time capsule. Like the point of preservation is not to make something static and to keep it in stasis. It's more so how do we make sure that the future generation can reuse this and still learn from the past and take some of that to the future. That's a really interesting comment. The, or not not comment, but concept, the letting it return to the earth. And um, one of the things that went through my head as you were talking about that was um, we, we don't want it to return to the earth and go away and be forgotten, right? We, we, we want to somehow preserve that memory, preserve that history, but um, – there's a lot of healing that has to happen in, in some instances as well. And I, I wonder, does that help in some way? Um, yeah, I, I think so. And I think part of it also, one of the reasons why also I love preservation is because, um, and part of the reason why I named the podcast Tangible Remnants is because there have been so many people and cultures that have 
done things and impacted the built environment of this country. Um, and so I think one of one of the myths of white supremacy and what we're taught is that only white people have done anything of significance in this country. That's like, oh, that's not true. Everyone's been here. Everyone's been doing things. And we've left remnants, tangible remnants on the built environment that are there for us to remember and to acknowledge and to pay attention to. Um, and so kind of thinking about the healing that preservation can have and kind of teaching and more expanding more of the story. Um, I think that's something that preservation has the power to do. But then again, I'm, I'm also a big preservation nerd, so it could be a little biased. <laughs> that's all right. That's, that's why we're here is to get your perspective and, and right. all of your nerdiness is, is yes. on full display. <laughs> well, Michelle, Michelle points out that textbooks are written by white people and the school boards yeah. are white people. And, you know, it's white history. Right. You know, and, yeah. uh, the fave, I guess, around here. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the victors get to tell the story. So how do we actually expand it? So we're um, changing yeah. it a little bit. And I, I was thinking yeah. about this in the context of um, kind of looking at historic photographs. Um, so um, whenever we're looking at historic photographs, we're always just seeing the people who are in the photo. But we're never think. at least I'm typically not thinking about the photographer and who actually took the photo. Mm. So I think so much of um, our history and what we've been focused on is just the people in the photo, as opposed to everyone behind the scenes who was there, who has a story, who has a narrative, who could actually speak about what happened. Uh, but we just haven't been focused on them because we've just been looking at the people in the picture, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 That, that's an interesting perspective as well. I had not thought about that at all. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to change gears slightly to, I know, to sustainability because we haven't really talked about that yet. So what's the impact? Christian wants to know, what's the impact of building codes on historic preservation when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, so it has been evolving. Um, with the 20, I think it was 2015 edition of the ICC, of the ICC um, existing in historic, rather historic buildings, let me caveat that again, certified historic buildings. So that means buildings that are either listed on the National Register or on a local register or a state register. Um, they now have to comply with the energy code if they are doing a alteration level three or higher. So if they're touching more than 50% of the footprint of the building, they have to bring it up to code unless they can get a written letter from the state historic preservation officer or some other preservation official to say that bringing it up to code will negatively impact the historic character of the building. Most won't write that letter. I'm just going to throw that out there. So unless it is a national historic landmark, that is the highest level of preservation protection that you can get in the country. So like the White House is a natural, national historic landmark. Hmm. Um, so unless it's at that level of significance, then you're typically going to have to bring it up to code unless you um, are doing less than a 50% alteration. So like the alteration level one or level two, because we have to deal with that. Is that White House up to code, do you think, energy-wise? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I feel like um, particularly with some of the governmental institutions where they don't necessarily have a building code official, it's more like they have uh, their own board. They have a little bit of discretion. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to, I don't know. I would hope so. But. Well, maybe someone can Google it and put it in the comments. Let great, us know. Great. Well, I, um, I think we need the uh, um, architect of the Capitol as a. Uh, there you go. Well, we were hoping to get that. That uh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get, ask the architect of the Capitol. Get him after the Pope. <laughs> Pope's on the wish list. Speak Italian on the side. Um, I don't speak much Italian anymore. I did, I did study a little bit of Italian before I went over to Italy for a little while, but I'm right sure we have time. We can brush up on our Italian, Jeff. I'm sure we have yeah, a little time. Yeah, we got some time. I speak okay. macchiato pretty well. <laughs> okay. Here's a wide open question. I don't know what the origin was, but here's okay. the question. And again, it was brought down to 120 characters. But uh, he said, if you could do anything you want for the rest of your life, what would cause you to look back at the end and say, this was totally worth it? Wow, that is a wide open question. All right. I know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, that's a tough one. I don't. It's a tough one. There's so many options. Um, I think it would probably be helping people connect. Um, and helping people see things differently. And I say that because I have a lot of different friends of different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicities. And one of the things that I've realized is that we're all just 
people are just people. So whenever I meet someone who is um, more prejudiced or more like, oh, us versus them and just more hatred or filled with more hatred, I'm just like, oh, you need more friends. Because like I feel like <laughs> you have more friends of different uh, backgrounds and ethnicities, you would realize that we're, there's really, we're more alike than not. Mm. Um, I would say if I could just keep connecting people, probably mm. over cocktails, over good food, travel a little bit. That'd be fun. I wonder, what, I wonder what that kind of program would look like. You could bring it to small towns across the country and just make friends with people. Yeah, you know, true. And just have a bunch of interesting people and they could say, hey, you're not as scary mm-hmm. as I thought. For, exactly. You know, like whatever. Exactly. They whatever ever get to. Right. Yeah, whether just I, I thought about doing that during the um well, I guess I'm not allowed to talk about that. We're gonna go back to the questions. <laughs> um now I want to know what you're about to say. Um I think, and, and this was in a comment that scrolled by a few minutes ago. Uh, it also ties back to something you said earlier. Um, you know, number one, the idea of meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, I think Christian posted a, uh, a quote from um, Frederick Law Olmsted that was talking about forcing people uh, to integrate or, or um, I forget how it said it. Um when they're, when they're not ready to, as I, again, in this conversation that we were having earlier today, um, you know, it's, it's awfully hard, right. Mm -hmm. To force people into a perspective that they're not ready for, that they don't want to have. Um, what about, because yesterday in context and clarity, we talked about silos and bubbles and seeing other people's perspectives. Have you found a way um, in dealing with people that, that are just against, right. They're, they're, they don't want to see the perspective. Right. Um, have you found a way to, um, bring them alongside or, or is it simply you work around the edges, uh, with the people that are ready and are open? Yeah. It's basically work around the edges because the, um, one of the quotes from Tony Morrison that I keep in mind is that um, the main function of racism is to keep you distracted from doing your work. So because you're always having to explain yourself, try and convince people of your worth, trying to prove that you're worthy to exist. And it's like that's too much time. And we all have a very finite time on this earth. So it's um, I say what I can. I you know make the cases. I try and have the conversations and be open and create the space for those interactions to happen. Um, but it's not my job to force anyone to have those conversations. Um, and it's one of those things where it's um, typically it, being able to get people to just see things a little bit differently sometimes helps. But it's almost like it has to be an inception situation. Um, it can't, and that's honestly one of the reasons why, um, when, when Quinn Evans started the Jedi committee, um, one of the things that I was telling our leadership was that I was not interested in being on this committee if it was only going to be made up of people of color, because then the perception is that, oh, you're playing the race card, you're race baiting, whatever that means. And so it becomes dismissed if it's not something that we're working on together. So it was making sure that we had people, um, from all different races, because it's one of those things where it's, I've seen this quote floating around Facebook somewhere, but um, racism isn't a black problem for white people to feel pity towards. It's, you know, it's a white problem for white people to solve. Like, I can't right. talk to someone who's racist and get them to not be racist. Like, that's the work of all of the non-racist white people to do. Like, that, that right. you have more agency than I do to turn someone's heart to not be racist or any of that kind of stuff. So it's just... Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't drag people kicking and screaming. I'm not going to berate people. I'm not going <laughs> to, not going to force the issue. It's, you know, I, mm-hmm. I exist and then we have the conversation and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite part about that comment is, I mean, it really aligns with what we try to do with context and clarity and, in entree architect is, is find, find a positive way forward. Right. Um, and I, I, that, that makes sense. You know, we're going to, if it's working around the edges, we're going to work around the edges as long as we can keep moving forward because that's the, that progress piece is the most important. Right. Yeah, Love absolutely. It. Okay. I decided maybe I can say what I was going to say. 
Okay. So I had this idea, and this may be a little strange, but this was my idea, so that there would be a troop of people who would be going to put on community plays in different areas around. So the people, the traveling people, would, would be all different types of people. They'd be gay people, people from all different religions, and then they'd just be a really fun group of people. So they go put on this community play, but half of the people involved would have to be local people. So then the local people then get to know the um, travelers and right. they get to be friends and they realize like, oh, I've never met uh, this type of person before. And you're actually really fun and great. And I had a really good time doing this play with you. So then this is the way you would spread this kind of uh, friendship and goodwill across the land. That's my idea. So if you want to go do that, I would love to do that. And take a, like a year sabbatical and just go spread spread love and joy of community plays <laughs> because you know when you're doing projects with people and just kind of working alongside them and not like pushing them right. to think differently but just letting them get to know you know get right. to know a different way of thinking right, I think that's right. Cool. yeah exactly you know if if i'm dealing with someone who they're only they've only seen a black person on cops that's right. going to be a really different conversation or if i'm dealing with someone who's only um interacted with a white person through what they see on Jersey Shore, you know, like that. The, the <laughs> I never seen you know, that. Should watch that show. <laughs> Just a, it, it varies depending on your perspective. Um, yeah. And also, I realize as we get older, it is harder to make friends outside of kind of our socioeconomic demographic. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's you know that's why I'm grateful for groups like this and other professional groups and realizing that lots of people can um, come as they are and then try and connect. Um, and that's also one of the reasons why I'm enjoying more of this. Yep, I'm an architect. And there, I can't tell you the number of um, older white architects have been like, but are you licensed? Because you can't call yourself an architect if you're not licensed. Okay. I'm aware. But I don't think you would have said that to a younger white dude. You just would have assumed he was an architect. But because right. I don't look the way you think an architect looks, you want to, you know, credential check me. But okay. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really annoying, actually. So, um, <laughs> okay. Um, also kind of on a different topic and all the way. Should a, a white person be allowed to translate Amanda Gorman's poetry? Now, he's um, Christian is a translator. Translate so into what? Other languages, I guess. Oh, I see. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I assume, um, I don't know the logistics and the, how that works. I mean, if it's literally a language translation, then maybe, but I don't, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's a, a fear of losing nuance okay. or, or something, maybe. That's, maybe. that's the first thing that pops into my head, but I don't, I'm not mm. quite sure. I just thought it was interesting. We were often talking about taking issues that are outside of the architectural realm. So, I mean, just thought I'd include that as a question. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. What else? So wh while you're looking for the next one, I'm going to read Merit's because it's right at the top of the screen. It says, Catherine, what you are describing is almost like participatory theater a la Augusto Boal, hmm. uh, the activist. I'll have to look that up. I know. I'll have to look that up too. And Merit, I apologize yeah. because I'm sure I butchered that name. <laughs> so. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, honestly, I really would like to do it. So anybody... Who hears right. this later in the Catherine future? Is, just send me Catherine's an email. Forming her band of because uh, <laughs> you know at the end they just everybody just hugs each other and they stay in touch and it would be like a two or three month situation in each place. I don't know. I think it could be. I think it could work to spread <laughs> spread that. All right. So we also have this question about um, that Leslie had. Um, well, she wants to know where did all the preservation pragmatists go. So um, I'm going to put that up on the screen, but she, she calls preservation pragmatists are the architects and planners who saw historic preservation as a means to celebrate both architecture and community of reviving life and soul. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like it's, and preservation as the field has been evolving, um, but I guess it depends on, it depends on the city, depends on the locale. Because there are some locales that are hyper-focused on keeping things exactly as they were. Um, they don't want solar panels, regardless of how how good the Tesla solar panels look like tile. 
Um, but there has to be the reality of the economics of maintaining a historic building and then the preservation protections that go into it. So making sure that we're not pricing people out and not gentrifying the area is something we have to also be mindful of. Um, and also just realizing the fact that as buildings get older and people are, pe as buildings and people get older, we need to make sure that they're able to still age in place. And what does that look like? How do we update them? Um, mm -hmm. So bunch of real concerns. Yeah. I like that idea of buildings aging in place. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm stuck on your returning to earth mm -hmm. uh, comment. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm going to be mulling over that for a while. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things where as I've been um, learning more and doing, um, learning more about work with indigenous um, communities and um, still learning how to do land acknowledgements and, really just kind of re-evaluating things that I've been taught and even just kind of the the idea of manifest destiny. The way that I was taught that made it sound so beautiful. Like it was just this natural, natural trees and not thinking of like the the displacement, destruction, the murder, all of, all of the bad stuff that went along with manifest destiny. And so just thinking like, oh, how do we tell that story? How do we, you know, get to that layer as well? So we're also talking about indigenous cultures and honoring those and how preservation changes from culture to culture. And um, so just in the States, we have uh, state historic preservation offices or, and, or SHPOs, but then we also have TIPOs, which are tribal preservation officers. So it's, there are TIPOs and SHPOs in the country. That's, that's interesting. I know we're coming up close to the top of the hour here. Well, so That's what um, I was just about to say, Jeff. I was about to say we only have five minutes left. Yep. <laughs> Sorry to step on you there. I know, say one thing. So okay. why don't we, uh, do you have one, one last good question? Um, well, while you're know. looking for it again. Um, well, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I have okay. to put it up on the screen. Okay. Um, a reminder, we're talking with Nikita Reed right now. Nikita is an architect. She's a preservationist. She's a podcaster. She's a, a, uh, sustainability advocate. Uh, she's a lot of things. So I encourage you to, uh, look for her podcast, tangible, uh, remnants and go to Nikita Reed.com to learn. You can find the podcast there as well, but you can find out more about, uh, Nikita at Nikita Reed.com tomorrow. Uh, the past six or seven Fridays, we've taken a little, little side trip to, uh, entertain a mini series on digital and social media platforms that architects could use. We're not going to do that tomorrow. Uh, oh. Sorry, Catherine. Um, <laughs> All week, we've been asking questions, what's bigger than? What's bigger than your work? Uh, what's bigger than architecture? What's bigger than ourselves? Uh, of course, this conversation today is really what's bigger than? What's, you know, talking about connectedness. So I want to flip that around tomorrow and um, and see if we can make this actionable and ask the question, what's the least that you could do? So if you learned anything this week, if anything resonated with you this week, tomorrow's conversation is about taking action and, and finding something that you can do to, to make progress. We'll get back to digital and social next Friday, but, um, but tomorrow we'll do that. And then also to give you a little preview, a little heads up, uh, t next week, uh, on Thursday, uh, this this version, this uh, Context and Clarity Live version, our special guest will be Randy Wilburn, whose um, new-ish organization, new-ish firm is Encourage, Build, Grow. You may recognize Randy's uh, name from any number of podcasts. He, he actually, in his bio, it says he's a serial podcaster. Uh, I think he has at least three going right now that I that I can think of. Um, but Randy um, was a longtime co-owner of uh, Zweig Group or Zweig White back then. Uh, it's Zweig Group today. That's hard to say. Z-W-E-I-G. Zweig Group. Um, that the, um, you, you might be familiar with him from a&E management consulting, publishing. Um, they're, they're, they're a really good organization uh, in the A&E world. Um, but Randy is one of the original co-owners over there. And now he's he's out on his own doing Encourage, Build, Grow. So he'll be, he, he will be our guest on uh, Thursday, next Thursday. Cool. What do we got, Catherine? 
Okay, well, now we only have two minutes, so I don't know if we have time for this one, but how mm -hmm. do you stop? This is the also the shortened version. Okay, so how do you stop gentrification that's often triggered by the cachet of national register? I guess that NR's national yeah. register uh, district status. So I would um, encourage you to take a look at some more place economic stuff because there have been studies on that. Sometimes there has been a false equivalency between historic or historic districts and gentrification. Um, but I think the thing to keep in mind is that the people who currently live in the neighborhood, they also want improved amenities and um, they want the neighborhood to improve. So how do you, it's more so how do you gentrify the area without displacement? Because it's the, the displacement piece is the problem, not the improvement of the built amenities. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I had not thought about it like that before. That's, that's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that uh, question, Leslie. And to everybody else that's out there, thank you for all of your questions and comments. Um, we are trying week by week to get you more and more involved in these conversations because, you know, we, we have this technology, we have this ability to connect like this. It's fantastic. I, I, I would love to just have a conversation between myself and Nikita and Catherine. Um, but we, we really do want to uh, pull all of you into and engage all of you in these conversations. So thank you for um, being a part of these conversations with us. And if you ever have any suggestions, uh, guests that you'd like to see or hear from in the future, uh, topics, things like that, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, I'm not hard to find on social. It's always Jeff underscore Eccles. Um, you know where I am. If you're part of the Entree Architect uh, community, you know where I am on Facebook. Um, send me a message. Send Catherine a message. Uh, Catherine, is it okay if they send you a message? Yes, yes. Send me a message. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but, but let us know. Give us your feedback and, and uh, let us know what you want to hear and um, what topics you want and things like that. Nikita, thank you for uh, coming on here and having this conversation with us today. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. I've enjoyed this. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Catherine, for uh, keeping the ship upright and going. I don't know. I think I rock it. I think I rock the ship more than keep it upright, honestly, but I I, it's my pleasure can, to be here. It was fun. I would love to go it. on. I would love yeah. to go on for another hour talking yeah. about this. Yeah. You, you can rock it, but it's it's staying upright. So yeah. that's the good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so with that, again, thank you to all of you. Uh, we appreciate every single one of you. Thanks for being here. I say this all the time, but thank you for making context and clarity, context and clarity a thing because it allows us to facilitate conversations like this. And without all of you uh, building this community around us, we couldn't have these conversations. And I think it's important to have them. So uh, again, thanks to everybody in uh, their own studio audience. Thanks, Nikita. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, I will be back tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern, same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, and we will talk about taking action tomorrow. What's the smallest thing? What's the least that you can do? That'll be the topic for tomorrow. Uh, as usual, I'll post an announcement of that as early as I can tomorrow morning, and we'll uh, we'll do that again. If you want to join the pre-party at 9 a.m. Eastern on Clubhouse, uh, we'll be there inside the Context and Clarity Room uh, on that same topic tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern. The Context and Clarity podcast comes out at 12.01 Eastern every weekday morning. Short form, you can... Uh, Listen to it faster than you can drink your coffee. So if you want to check that out, it's wherever podcasts are consumed. And with that, everybody, thank you. Take care of yourselves. Stay well. Stay safe. Keep everybody around you safe and well. Take a little bit of time to breathe tonight. Get a little bit rejuvenated and ready to go back at this tomorrow. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's Context and Clarity Live episode. Selfishly, I love these conversations because I get to be the go-between between you and some really incredible guests. To that end, I want to know what you think about today's guest. Message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, yeah, that's not me. I'm the other Jeff Eccles. 
Oh, and if you have an idea for a future guest, tell me who it is and why you think they'd be a good guest for one of these conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you, and I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.